All right, you guys can welcome Chris and Meryl. We'll tell you about them, and uh, yeah. Uh, so we, we tell the story differently every time as to exactly when we met, but I think we determined that it was 11 years ago. Uh, it was the first time that we met, and uh, so we've been, uh, Kristen and I, early days of Anthem, we're seeking out uh, a mentor couple to walk with in life and ministry, and Chris and Meryl had been recommended to us, and we, we sort of cold called them and said, hey, can we meet? And uh, they said, sure, and so we met at Lemonade in Pasadena for our first lunch, and uh, spent an hour together, and then we spent the next 11 years together. Like, that was kind of how it went. Um, and so we've been uh, walking with them. They've really been a huge encouragement to us over the years. They've been so faithful. Uh, a couple of things about them. They lead two primary things. They lead the Genesis Church and Genesis Collective. Genesis Church meets in Costa Mesa um, on Sunday evenings. They'll actually be meeting tonight, going back and uh, doing double duty today. And, uh, and so they meet in Costa Mesa in a beautiful warehouse in a great spot, and then they lead the Genesis Collective, which is a collective of churches, of which we are a part, that's working to plant churches into the nations. So Saja Michelle, and Gaz and Lois, and Jacob and Sarah, these are all part of our Genesis Collective, uh, working to plant churches into the nations, and Chris and Merrill have been at the helm of that apostolically for uh, its entire existence, which is now close to six years, I think, we've been going as a Genesis Collective, so it's been a really exciting thing. Um, Merrill, before we hand over to Chris, would you just share, um, a little bit uh, on the word hope. I think that's been something that's been talked about in our circles for the last month or so, and even just hearing from Florida and then what people might be going through. On would you share hope. on the hope. word hope, and then, and then we'll go. Wow. Well, gosh, the first thing I want to say is you gave me hope financially that this community could raise that much money to be generous with is actually mind-blowing. Honestly, I sat there thinking, wow. Imagine if every church in Southern California, let's just say, could do what you guys have done. Imagine how many, how much impact we could have, even in the Floridas, you know. There'd just be money flowing. So I just, that gave me incredible hope. I think at a personal level, um, my hope right now is in the transforming power of Jesus Christ who lives in me because I know my frailty. I, I just, you know, I, I, as Matt was introducing us, I thought to myself, we're old and we church planted five years ago. And I thought to myself, if we can do it, some of you can do it. So don't write yourself off. You know, there is this beautiful truth of the Christ who dwells in me, who is transforming this body and making me new. And I'm so aware of my frailty and right now he's really digging deep on one of them. And, um, but I'm so encouraged, I'm so hopeful because he hasn't left me as an orphan. He's my father and he's saying, hmm, I'm gonna help you with that. And the loving, drawing, uh, you know, um, beauty of Christ is still transforming me. And honestly, I have such hope in the gospel that really does a deep work. There is nothing, it's, we sang that song, in the fire, I'm alive in you. And I just wanna say, that's when sometimes our faith is most precious and most refined is in those times, so. Can I pray for you, Chris? Good to see you. Good to see you too. <laughs> 
Father, I just thank you so much for these two. I thank you for how they have faithfully pursued you in their lives, how you have used them to bring the gospel to many parts of this world, and how you have used them to lift us up and encourage us and hold our arms up as we seek to do the same. And I pray for Chris this morning as he ministers to us and brings us to your word. God, would you fill him with your spirit? Um, and would that meet um, what the Spirit is doing in our hearts this morning to lift our eyes and to see you, Jesus? We love you in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, hi, everyone. It's great to see you. I was told last night we had dinner with friends, actually shared a Shabbat meal, and uh, I was told that I'm advantaged because I'm old. And I'm a South African, so I can hide behind my boomer South Africanism. Last Sunday night at our pre-gathering prayer, uh, the prayer was kind of quite quiet. And uh, you, you know, one of the best biblical words is the world word and. That's right, A-N-D. It's one of the most important biblical words because we all tend to lean into our area of bias. And uh, so, so what God the Holy Spirit does is any primary truth, he, he creates an and with another primary truth. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality, a husband and a wife. And um, so my grandson has the most glorious imagination and uh, believes, yeah, he's three years old, and, and he's, he, he's just got endless words. And uh, he told people in, uh, he calls our children's ministry the ministry, because obviously that's the most important ministry in the church for a three-year-old oh, is our kids' ministry. So he described to them how he went to the zoo. He didn't go, but in his imagination he went. And so he described with great eloquence how each animal sounded. And so he spent the next week roaring around the house. Rawr! You know, so we kind of try to suggest on occasion the lamb would be superior, it would be a higher virtue. He never quite got that. So I thought that the pre-gathering prayer, uh, Leander, come here, boy. And I said, what does a lion do? He says, Papa, it roars. How does it roar? Rawr! So I said, all right, I want you to stand here. There were probably about 20 of us praying together. And I said, I want you all, now you see how tricky I was. See, because what happens is we build a pre preferred cultural methodology. It's how I am. And I knew that it's so cute when a kid roars. So I said, I want you to show all these people how you roar. Rawr! I said, now will you roar back at my grandson? Every single person roared. <laughs> of course they did. See, it wasn't a moment of personal prejudice or preference or I don't do roar. It was like, how cute is this little grandkid? I want to roar just to make him feel good. There's a lion and there's a lamb. And the true genius of our spirituality is to understand when God requires us to roar like the lion. Strong, bold, courageous, tenacious, um, and then there's the time of the lamb, gentle, quiet, empathetic, compassionate. And the true genius of effective leadership is to understand when we are to be like lions, 
When we are to roar like lions, they did an interview with me um, for our city, city of Costa Mesa. They're trying to get the churches to pray together, and they asked me to, they interviewed me about uh, our prayer times in South Africa during the Civil War. And uh, it created, I mean, and it was interesting, I, I just answered the questions but I know that there were times we prayed in such a sustained way that every one of us went away hoarse. Not because it was our prayer culture, but it was our biblical obligation. Our nation was burning. People were dying on the streets. The police were killing the young. Um, it was a most brutal time. And so God taught us how to pray like lions. Hour after hour. After hour, sometimes half nights of prayer, sometimes right through the night. Now, I love my sleep, and I'm not that fond of, I was in my 20s to be awake till all unearthly hours, but not so much anymore. Now, my point is simply this. Thank you for buying into the and. Thank you for embracing a story of godliness that stretches you beyond your comfort zones. Let me just open my computer here quickly. But thank you for that. Thank you, Anthem, for your courage and your flexibility during this one of the most dastardly challenges of our generation. Um, historians will write about the pandemic. Church historians will write about how the church responded to this. And your courage, your flexibility, your obedience, I typed in this morning, your generosity, your kindness, your gospel-centeredness, and your global passion helped the church ride its way through the last three years. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But thank you for that, because it's been a most complex time. Meryl and I have been ministering for 40 years, married 42. And I had to say we were all on level ground. The youngest pastor who just planted a church one year in to the most um, Pastor Chang in Fullerton. I think he's been doing this for like 50 years. We were all on level turf. None of us knew how to handle that space. We all felt fragile, vulnerable, uncertain, but a community like yours that managed to hold its place has been incredibly wonderful and a superb testimony. David Gibbon, he's a kind of a cultural commentator, entrepreneur, and prophet, said that we are all facing three uns, uncertainty, the unknown, and the uncontrollable. And dear friends, that's not done yet. Those things we learned, how to be agile, mobile, how to spin on a dime, how to be immediately obedient, are still words, thoughts, and ideas that are true today, as much as it was yesterday. Sociologists speak about social acceleration that has brought change fatigue. It's produced mass disorientation, anxiety, and even depression. Of course it has. But God, but the church. Would you grab your Bibles? I think the text will appear on the screen over my shoulder. And I want to take you to 2 Kings. Now, Matt asked me to speak on elders and mission as the two kind of primary ideas this morning. 
and uh, they are subjects with which I have great affection. But I thought I would do it slightly differently, and uh, this is the story of Josiah. Now, the background is I said to Meryl the day before, I am so tired of this book. I'm reading through it in my devotions, one of the four I'm going through currently. And uh, it's several times, every chapter, it says of a particular king, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight. He did evil. He did more evil than his father. And I just was exasperated. I wanted to cheat. I just wanted to get to the end of Second Kings and pretend I'd read it all. And voila, Josiah. How many of you know the story of Josiah? Just so I know how red you are. Okay, very good, all five of you. All right, so let's read it together. Second Kings chapter 22, and I'll pick up in verse 1. Now, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Not 80, not 18, not 28, eight. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years, so he died at 39. His mother's name I'm not too sure how to say it, but I'm just going to say it confidently, and then you'll think I know how to say it. Jadida. Jadida. All right? And, and she was from that other place. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right, or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, that guy, the son of that guy, the son of that guy, to the temple of the Lord. And he said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work of the temple. He lists them all. And for the sake of time, I'm going to jump to verse 8. In Hilkiah, the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Help us now, Lord, as we open up your scriptures. May they be alive to us. May our questions be answered, our doubts uh, replaced by faith. Um, our personal reflections of shame and guilt, may they be surpassed with redemption and freedom. And uh, may we leave today with our shoulders just a little further back, our chests just a little further out, our souls massaged by grace as you minister to all of us. The Word of God brings life, and we ask more than a clever speech, the Word of God bringing life in your precious name. Amen. Josiah was eight years old. It's one of those extraordinary things that just doesn't make sense to us in the day and time in which we live. We're a boomer-driven world right now. My generation and some of you gray hairs with me, we are the conquering kings. We are the ones ruling the world. And into this space, God brings this eight-year-old. Josiah means healed by Yahweh. Healed by Yahweh. Now, sometimes in the story of God, we need some new young leaders who are untainted by injury, habits, and rituals. They're brand new. They're like a white canvas to the artist. And it seemed like God wanted to have a young man who was untainted by injury, habits, or ritual. 
Now, I want to throw this in just for a moment and move very quickly into the eldership conversation. One, we are not that familiar, unless you are very churched, with the notion of elders. It's not our common vernacular. It's not what we talk about. Oh, I'm going to hang out with the elders. Unless you've been a Christian for 23 and a half years, and you've been in an elder-led church. But when we hear the word elder, we automatically assume it has to be someone who's old. Not true. If God can make an eight-year-old a king, then, and he can take a young man called Timothy, who was about 14, 15, 16-ish, to travel with Paul, I think we make a mistake when we speak about the next generation of leaders. We make a mistake when we talk about the young adults as if you're an old adult, then you can really be spiritual. I was on the call to a church planter in London about a month ago, and I said, Dylan, how are things going? And he told me, and, and, and the, the young adults are doing this, and I said, Dylan, can I just stop you for a moment? Why do you use that language? Well, he paused for it and never thought of why he used that language. Doesn't everyone use the language? I said, do you know it creates a gap between the young adults and the old adults? Why not just adults? You can drive at 16. You can go to war at 18. You can kill people in the army at 18. You can drink at 21. Most of the world is 18. Don't create a space the young and the old, just draw us together into a single narrative in which we are obedient to God. We need, dear, dear friends, churches where leaders are chosen by the nature of the hand of God on their lives and not by their age or their acceptability. I remember appointing our first 19-year-old elder and the backlash I had from the church. He's not even experienced. I know. He's not even married. I know. He hardly even pays his own bills. I know. <laughs> I haven't got the point yet. Josiah was eight years old. What I love about the idea of a fresh canvas is that God's looking sometimes for, for the, the, the canvas that is fresh and open to new ideas. The thing which I love piggybacking off that is that Josiah's mother is named, not his father. Now, there's a wonderful body of truth out in literature and sermons about the role of the father, and I love it, and I'm a believer in it, and I feel like we need to regain, especially in the woke world in which we live, the role of the fathers and the men are often underplayed or downplayed. But that doesn't mean, however, dear friends, that we can underplay the role of the mother. The mother is mentioned here. Do you know during World War II, they did a study. And they asked, because suddenly there's massive conscription of hundreds of thousands of men, um, and some women volunteered and were sent to the four corners of the globe. Some began to emerge. Some cream began to come through. And so the sociologists thought, well, this is worth some study. Let's find out why have these men become sergeants, drill sergeants, captains, lieutenants? Why did they separate themselves? And after a significant study of many years, the question was asked, well, what was the commonality? 
And the commonality was not they had great dads, and I hope I am one, but they had great moms. The overriding reality of every man who crept his way through to the front line of military promotion was that he had been raised by a good woman. Mothering in the church cannot be overstated. In a church culture where its ministry is often equal men, I think we have to reconsider that. If we really are family, we've got three kids. Our eldest daughter lives in Australia with her husband and four kids. They've planted a church. Our second daughter is married with her husband and two kids, and she kind of runs our church, truth be told, because we travel a lot. And we have a 23-year-old son who's just graduated a year ago from Point Loma. Now, if anyone thought I had the greatest impact upon my kids, that is simply not true. Both of my daughters, the first day they came back from honeymoon, the first thing they wanted to do was have some time with Mama Bear. Josiah achieved what Josiah did because his mother, whose name means beloved of the Lord, schooled him, groomed him, trained him in the ways of the Lord most effectively. Moving on quickly. You with me? All right, you can say so. It was so funny. You know, we got a very young church in Orange County. The average age is overwhelmingly 20. They're, I think there's about 10 of us who are over 34. <laughs> True story. Don't ask me why. I don't have the secret sauce. It just is. So one of my friends from South Africa preached there, and he comes from a charismatic background. Now, you must understand we're Orange County. Everyone's super cool, and no one says anything. And I forgot that in some churches people say amen. So Nick was preaching, and everyone was quiet, and he couldn't cope with it. So he said, amen, a amen, and no one said anything. <laughs> and then he preached more, amen, and no one said it. I said, Nick, afterwards, I said, Nick, this is not a charismatic boomer church. People don't say amen. For, the, for millennials and Gen Zs, that's a very curious thing. Why would you want to say that when a man's speaking? It just doesn't make sense. All right, so number one, Josiah was eight years old. He lived a life of deep devotion. Elders are men who understand, and, and women, if you take the couple together, who understand what it is to put the church on their back and live a devotional life seeking God for the whole community. I could speak about that at length. We see it in the life of Josiah, and we see it um, in the life of elders who really lead the church well. Secondly, well, whatever, however you want to number it, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And folks, that is so imperative. In the eyes of the Lord. Now, can I be a little cheeky and lean in on my boomer South Africanism? There are many people in our churches who try to lead vicariously through us. They try to get us to make decisions in keeping with their preference and their bias. And so instead of doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord, they want us to do what is right in their eyes, their culture, their family of origin, their tradition. But it's what is done in the eyes of the Lord. 
One of the pains in my father's heart right now is the number of people who are walking away from biblical community. I know all the reasons. We've got family who've done it. Under the misguided notion of the church has injured me, the church has demanded too much of me, and they walk away. But the problem with that, dear friends, is what it will do to their children and their children's children. D.A. Carson said the first generation has the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, the third generation loses the gospel. I'm already seeing, and forgive my fatherly passion here, I'm already seeing the children of those who will walk away from the church who don't even know who Moses is, who have no active faith or passion, no spirit of generosity for the poor and the disenfranchised and the advancement of the kingdom. Their life has become preoccupied with the idols of their world. It's too great a price. It's too expensive. If you are injured, I am so sorry the church has injured you. It has injured me. It has injured Meryl. It has injured Matt and Kristen. We daren't walk away from biblical community. Your children and your children's children will pay the price. Josiah walked in a way that was right in the Lord's eyes. So it is with an eldership team who understand continuously the finger on the pulse of what brings a smile to heaven. Can I move very quickly? I don't know how you're numbering it, and I'm not a great number-by-number preacher, as you've already seen. But walked in the ways of the ancestor David, sufficient to say in Psalm 78, it said, David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. Integrity of heart and skillful hands. And I don't have time to show that in the life of Josiah. But God is looking for teams of elders with the integrity of heart and with skillful hands. He did not turn, furthermore, to the right or to the left. Now, I'm going to tread on some landmines here. Please hear me clearly. In Isaiah 30, 21, it says, Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. True effective eldership is a team that knows which direction God has set, and they hold to that course no matter how wiggly or shaky the steering wheel feels. During the, the, the Civil War in South Africa, I would come back from Sundays absolutely exhausted. I said to Merrill, I felt like I had the, again, forgive my language, kind of the wheel on the ship and the storms were battering it left and right, and the waves were hitting it, and the winds were blowing, and all of that was completely overwhelming, but I knew under God I could not turn, and the team could not turn from the right or to the left. And the pandemic demanded that we move to the right or to the left. Pastors was demanded of them. Are you for BLM or against it? Is that our job? Are you for Trump or against Trump? My Bible says we are not to turn to the right or to the left. 
It's not to be center, dear friends. It's to be other. It's to be kingdom. Remember when King Ahab, and I'm sorry for those who don't know the story, but King Ahab saw Elijah the prophet, and Ahab was a bad dude. And Elijah walked into the king's presence, and the king said to him, Oh, it's you, O troubler of Israel. The church is a prophetic community that never fully endorses to the right or to the left. We only endorse the kingdom. Now, as individuals, we vote whichever way we have conviction. But as a people, we are other. We love our enemies. We take care of the poor. We look after the refugees. We embrace the immigrant. It's hard, huh? That's a tough word right there. The Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most difficult passage in all of Scripture to live. That's the other. And Josiah was loved by the Lord because he did not turn to the right or to the left. He howled. Eight-year-old kid with a mother who loved the Lord. He howled. Remember when John the Baptist saw Herod, King Herod? The same idea as Elijah and Ahab. He said to King Herod, you're not allowed to do what you've just done. You've married your brother's wife. You can't do that. Take off his head. You know, I was listening to an interview. Now, I'm treading very lightly here. I was listening. <laughs> Trust me, this is light. <laughs> Come to my church and you'll see me stomp. I was listening to an interview when Clinton had the Monica Lewinsky affair. It was a CNN interview with T.D. Jakes. and said, Pastor Jakes or Bishop Jakes or whatever, what do you think, do you want a president, the question goes like this, who has an affair with one of his interns? T.D. Jakes' answer was interesting. He said this, when I'm in an airplane... I want to know that the captain can land the plane, not who he sleeps with. But the same progressive left threw their toys out when Trump said what he did about woman. You see, we're not right or left. The church community is other. We treat people with dignity. We never objectify all people are equal in the sight of the Lord, irrespective of race or gender or life story or life circumstance. It is a very difficult job to be an elder in the church, to hold that other line when there are voices to the right screaming, voices to the left demanding, and we hold. God, we do right in your eyes we will not be thrown to the right or to the left. Individually, we make our own choices by conviction. But communally, we hold ourselves to the text. Does that make sense? I'm saying all of that.
Please be very gracious towards your leaders. It's a very difficult job to do. That went out well, didn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. The enemy's efforts will always be to distract, to disorientate, and to discourage. Always. I'll say them again. Distract, disorientate, or discourage. He will always do that. But divine obedience is at the central core of who we are and what God has called us to be and to do. All right, moving on. I'm not doing too badly time-wise. Immediately, Josiah got the building of the temple to be the high priority. As elders, our job is discipleship, both in pastoral care, making sure everyone in the church is cared for, as well as discipleship, making sure that those upon whom the hand of God rests, we pour our lives into them. Again, a very difficult job. Meryl's a therapist, and um, she keeps, she has three hats on. She has a therapist's hat she has our local community that is new and beautiful and exquisite, and we love her, but they're full of millennials, and they keep us frustrated and curious all at the same time. Oh, they are. Trust me. I love them. I don't know if I've ever loved a church. We've led three, planted two. I don't know if we've ever loved a church like we love this one, but boy, are they a curious bunch, these millennials are. Now, into that context comes this idea of rebuilding the temple. Can I just make a few comments about the temple? Ephesians has 10 pictures of the church. One author I've read says there are 97 pictures of the church. I'm still trying to find them all. But let me just focus in on the temple, the beauty that elders have the privilege to rebuild the temple of God. It is a place of worship. Now, can I ask you to grow and to develop your worship muscle? Why? It's not just because we know how to sing three songs, but it's because we know how to let the presence of God dwell amongst us. Remember the, the great verse in 1 Corinthians 14, where, where the unbeliever is there, the presence of God comes, and he runs forward. He says, God is in the house. Basically, my words, I want to be redeemed, reconciled, saved. There is something, dear friends, exquisite about it. Now listen to me. Can I, can I, again, can I lean in for a moment? Please don't be this variety. Thou art worthy. What time's the game this afternoon? No one gets saved. No one encounters God. No one experiences spiritual transformation but in a people who know how to worship. Have you wondered about the Ethiopian eunuch? Again, sorry if you don't know the story. But in the book of Acts, there's a story about an Ethiopian eunuch who literally spent months from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to get to Jerusalem, and because he was a eunuch, he wasn't allowed in the temple to worship. He had to stand outside of the temple and look. But he took months to get to see the people of God worshiping. Why? Because something happens when we do. Lives get touched. Lives get transformed. 
Lives are, um, transcendence breaks into our human world again. Hope gets restored. And I've often thought of the Ethiopian eunuch and asked myself, who is the modern eunuch? Is it the transgender person? Because we have no idea what to do with them. Who is that person who stands looking at our worship saying, oh, I will drive for months in an ox cart in a chariot to only see you worship because I can't even be part of it. Elders know how to facilitate a worship culture where we grab a handful of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. We grab a handful of heaven and we drag it down into our world so the people to the right or to the left of us, that person with an eating disorder who is sitting around you, who lives with shame and guilt, who will give him or her hope but your worship? It's a silent scream. Who do I talk to? No one. So I will just come to our gathering on a Sunday, and I will pretend everything's fine. Everything's not fine. Who will lift my arms? This worshiper, that worshiper, that worshiper. The young man or woman who's struggling with pornography. The silent scream for most young men. I'm yet to meet a young man who doesn't have an issue with pornography. They slump into our spaces of worship, heads down, full of shame. When they hear the word, he has clean hands and a pure heart, they are devastated. Who will lift up their broken hearts? Promising they'll never do that again, and never is at least 24 hours. That person, that person, that person. That person. When we worship with gay abandonment, and I use that in the correct translation, when we worship God with with abundance and extravagance, with deep gratitude, and our hearts are filled with joy and delight, God can do things with that. We have a worship evening once a month that has no other agenda but worship. And we worship as long as is needed because I want to develop this, the worship muscle in our community. There was a young girl. I saw her on the, at the back. There had never been in a church before. And she stood like this for the longest time, just looking. And as the evening went, she relaxed more and more. We had some prayer. She asked people to pray for her. And then my daughter went across and said, do you mind if I pray? Now she is weeping. Weeping. There are no chairs. It's an empty room with a band plonked in the middle. In her tears, she says, When you guys sing, does this kind of blank happen all the time? She cussed. <laughs> and Dana thought for a moment and said, Yep, this kind of bling happens all the time. See, people want to encounter God. They don't want the forms of religion and ritual. They want the encounter, the existential experience with the living God. And when we build a temple like this, people will encounter God. Blessing. I am amazed how few people ever get blessed. Ever get blessed. They don't even know what that means. So what we've done is we've plonked a table 
laden with bread, wine on this side, grape juice on that side for our communion. That's what the temple is, to be blessed. Remember when baby Jesus was taken to the temple? Anna, the prophetess, blessed him. Simeon, the prophet, blessed him. And we said we want our people to be blessed. And so we break the bread, literally break the breads, big, chunky, squizzed sourdough, I munch it handfuls afterwards. And, and, just, and, and, and we have people in the corners, and they will break bread, say, I bless you. And you can see sometimes the look in the eyes. People say, no one has ever blessed me. So when they come to the temple, I know the temple, the, I, I know all that. But they pause as a piece of sourdough is broken off. Oh, I bless you in the name of Jesus. And then the wife or the, part, the, the other person, because we've got a lot of single people, we'll put them in twos, we'll bring the wine or grape juice according to their choice. The cleansing power of the blood of Jesus be yours. And it's so beautifully sacred because people are encountering the eternal, holy one of Israel. That's what eldership does. It creates an environment of purity and holiness and blessing. Rivers of living water flow. Josiah said, let's build the temple first. Now, I look up at the clock and it's not my friend and I'm about halfway through. I <laughs> know, oh, I'm a disaster. <laughs> Elders defend the church against idols. Elders defend the church against the idolatry of the day. So much of the Josiah story is that he pulls down, smashes, he burns. Even the tombs of the priests of Baal, he gets them to exude the bones and burns the bones and scatters the ashes. I mean, he was so dang serious about this. The problem is with idols is they're so around us, we don't even notice them. So I thought I'd mention a few Orange County ones so you can laugh at us. <laughs> Orange County's idol is the body beautiful. The number of young girls, 18, 19, 20, who Botox their lips or at least use fillers, who already had breast augmentation, is frightening. The message is clear. My daughter, you are not beautiful enough. I'm going to make you more beautiful as a high school graduation gift. It's an idol. And idols always demand everything and give nothing in return. I will make you more beautiful, the idol says. But in return, you will get insecurity, vulnerability, uncertainty, living without a sense of self-confidence and self-worth. Elders defend our people against idols. Orange County also, and I am trying to land here, is materialism. 
They try and understate it, but it's as loud as the day. Elders counter materialism with this, as you've done so exquisitely, by creating a culture of generosity. We will not be held captive to get the next best, next coolest. And we can enjoy it. Meryl bought me this uh, Buck Mason jacket for my birthday. I dig it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not saying none, but we're not held captive to it. That's what we do in Orange County. Orange County has a cultural faith where we want the privilege without obligation. Don't ask me to do anything. I was helping out in a church a couple of years ago and when I wasn't leading one, and the, the beautiful little uh, kids' ministry girl comes to see me just weeping after a Sunday morning. I just preached, and she said, um, I asked one of the fathers if he would volunteer with the kids, and he looked at her, and he said, young lady, when you volunteer at my office, I will come and volunteer at yours. I want everything. I want all the privilege. I don't want any obligation. Don't ask me to do anything. What's in it for me? It's a high Orange County idol. And then the idolatry of children. They rule the families. Their schedules are more valued than anything else. I will be involved in community if it does not disrupt what my children do. Those elders in Josiah's day had to deal with the idols, recognize them, identify them, pull them down, and burn them. That's what good elders do. And folks, can I just say, I have to land. I'm so sorry. Well, maybe you're relieved that I'm done. Um, <laughs> But, but, but can I say this? I'm so grateful for the eldership team in this community. It's not easy. It's not easy. You know, when you start addressing idols, people feel you are personally rejecting them because it's so deeply ingrained in their cultural soul. How dare you? But if we embrace a posture of humility... So, oh God, I so want my raise my kids up in the ways of the Lord. I want my kids to love Jesus more than anything else. I thought my son was a phenomenal soccer player. Always all stars from when he was a little Ike. And if I had bowed to this idolatry, I would have missed Sunday gatherings. I would have missed prayer meetings. I would have missed that and the other, racing him from one uh, club game to the next. At 18 years old, high school, he said, Dad, I'm done. I don't want to play soccer anymore. I'm burnt out. I said, T, that's okay, boy. I understand. You're around soccer. I'm so glad we taught him. T, you know we love Jesus more than we love you and your soccer. It's a difficult job being an elder. To navigate ourselves through these. And I'm quoting our Orange County idols. I'm not sure I know what yours are. Let me land with this exhortation. Jesus is the head of the church. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. I mean, love 
Jesus, with all of your heart, and love his bride, his precious, precious bride. And you will find following and partnering with elders really easy. When we lose sight of Jesus, the great Messiah, the great conquering king, the great healer, the majestic one, our hearts will shift, and pretty soon the attitude will be, who do you think you are? But when he is the focus of my affection, when I open my eyes in the morning and I want to be with him more than anything else, all these other things find their rightful place. Thank you for listening to me. I know I tiptoed through the tulips a little bit. I know I did. But I hope the heart with which I shared, you can throw, spit out the bones, man. Anything you felt I said was unbiblical, throw it out. But may underneath that, the thread of biblical truth capture your heart to a life of immediate obedience. Can we pray together? Father, I do thank you for this extraordinary church. So often, in so many ways, countercultural, the prevailing winds that so want to absorb us. Thank you that, like um, Josiah, when the word of the law was read, he wept and he held to it with all of his might for 31 years. Thank you that this community, for 12 years, has managed to find your word and hold to it. Even if it wasn't popular, even if it wasn't applauded, Hold to your word, because there is nothing sweeter, nothing more life-transformative than the authority and the power that comes into the text. Now I ask, Lord, even as I touched on some challenging things, silence my voice, and let the voice of the eternal Holy Spirit be loud as you speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name.